The student population in most colleges and universities is becoming increasingly diverse during a time when much public discourse is characterized by growing political polarization and divisiveness. In this episode, we discuss a MOOC that is being developed to help faculty nurture a productive learning environment for all of our students. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guests today are Melina Ivanchikova and Matthew Lawrence Wallet. Matthew is the founding executive director at Cornell University's Center for Teaching Innovation. Melina Ivanchikova is the associate director of inclusive teaching in the center. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Delighted to be here with both of you. Our teas today are I'm drinking sea buckthorn and Siberian blueberry from Mongolia. Wow, yummy. That's impressive. And I decided to go the rebel route, and I am drinking coffee. That is a true rebel. I apologize to all of your listeners who might be dismayed to hear that there's a coffee drinker here in the afternoon. Again, yeah. (laughs) About half or more of our guests are drinking coffee or something else. I have my nice, boring English afternoon tea again. And I have ginger peach black tea. Black tea is always appropriate. (laughs) Can't go wrong. So we invited you here today to discuss the teaching and learning in the diverse classroom course that you've been developing at Cornell. Can you tell us a little bit about the origin of the project? Sure. When Melaine and I were introduced, I guess, when we became colleagues back when I first got here, we were looking for a project that could play up to the strengths of the merger of our unit. So part of being the founding directors, two units came together, and I'll spare you all of that, other than to say it was a great opportunity. So one thing was finding a project that had some heft for our newly formed unit. But second, and perhaps the primary part of this origin story, was the inaugural address by President Martha Pollack, who was newly installed as president. In fact, the first thing I did when I got to Cornell, first public thing I attended, was her inauguration. And in the context of her remarks that afternoon, she talked at length about the importance of creating an inclusive learning environment for all students. And I thought, well, I know just how to do that. And now we've got this fantastic staff. We have the skills and the expert knowledge that we can actually do something that would benefit our campus, but also might be something with usefulness for people out on other campuses that might not have the same opportunities or resources. And I'll add to that to say a little bit about the context in which the course has emerged, which is that Cornell, probably like many other campuses across the U.S., was rocked by several events that happened both on campus and off campus, moments of slurs being used in public, events that were very demoralizing and just strained the learning climate for students here. So within that context, we're also thinking about how to support our faculty and teachers in the classroom to be able to reach out to students and warm up the learning environment. Yeah. I would want to add, though, that this course is not in response to those. This isn't a reaction to these sort of community and campus incidences. Mostly it's to prove the point that at Cornell, we're as vulnerable to them as every institution in America. There's really very little inoculation against it. 
And so what we thought is that if we could do something that had utility for our faculty that appealed to them and helped them, that it might also appeal and be of use to faculty at other schools and colleges as well. I saw a little bit of that at a presentation at a conference a few weeks ago, and I was really impressed. Could you tell us a little bit about how the course is structured? Sure. We're using a framework that has five different dimensions to it, and it's the way that the course is organized. So we begin by asking instructors to reflect on themselves. Who are you as an instructor? And then who are students? How do you get to know who your students are? How do you help them get to know each other? What do you know about the students at your institution in general? And then how do you teach? What are the teaching strategies that you use? What is your pedagogy? And part of that is talking about what you can do to prepare in advance for a hot moment that might arise, as well as what to do when there is a hot moment that arises. And then what is your curriculum, both from the perspective of the content of what you're teaching, but also how your discipline looks at the world. How has your discipline wrestled with diversity and inclusion at the broader disciplinary level? And then ending with really thinking about the learning environment and thinking about action planning. What are some changes that you can make to your course? And then what we've been seeing in those is that people think beyond the course level from changes small to broader and more systemic. So just to tag onto that, people have been thinking about their ongoing learning, things that they can do to continue to advance their own development, things that they can do at the course level, interventions that they might make at the departmental level. And that's pretty exciting when they want to go out and talk to their colleagues. And then third is thinking at the college and or the institutional level, changes that they'd like to see happen in terms of the larger climate. They have actually been really ambitious and pretty exciting. Can you talk a little bit about the timeline of the course? Yeah, we, like everybody in higher ed, are always looking for that sweet spot. And anyone who works with faculty or as a faculty member knows there are about five or six weeks in the dead center of the semester where we might have half a chance of getting your attention. That's it. That's the sweet spot. And so the whole intentionality around the course being four weeks long was so that we could load it right in the middle of the semester, not right at the opening of the start of the launch of the semester, but also ending before the Thanksgiving holidays, knowing that once people return to campus, faculty and students alike are all on the downhill slope. And at that point, it's all about wrapping the semester up. How many times have you offered it now at Cornell? We've offered it twice. We just wrapped the second run of the course. And I'll just add to what Matt said earlier, that we estimate that it takes people about 10 or 15 hours to get through the course. It's asynchronous, and we release modules each week. And I should add to, just for transparency, we let people take as long as they want. So even though the course officially runs for four weeks, we get tons of requests for extensions, and we're happy to grant them. I mean, it's just like teaching a group of undergraduates. We understand, mostly we want people to feel like they can complete the experience. Yes, and we should say that the version that we've run on the Cornell campus is going to be transformed into a MOOC, the Massive Open Online course that's set to run in November this year. So that will be open to anybody. And you're running that on edX? That's correct. And there is a sign-up form on your website, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes so people can be notified to join that when it's available. I've already added my name to the list. Rebecca and I have talked about it, and we'd like to run a cohort here through yeah, that as well. Yeah, would be great. Can you talk a little bit about how faculty have responded in the last couple of cohorts that you've had? 
Sure. Well, I'm really gratified to say overall, we've had a very positive response. And the only negative has come when people have run out of time, when they said, you know, I'm just crazy busy and I wish I had more time to do a deeper dive. So in terms of regrets, that's one end of the continuum. But we also are, I think, assessing the utility of the course of the usefulness of it by people's expressions of learning outcomes. So we do a pre-post. This is just only for the on-campus cohort. But we've had fantastic responses along a whole range of outcomes, some we hadn't expected and others we had hoped for. Do you want to give some examples? Sure. One thing I wanted to say that was interesting is that we also offer face-to-face opportunities, and we were wondering, were we going to get the same folks who come to those coming into the course? But instead, we've seen quite a range. One of the things that surprised me is that we asked people how many years they had been teaching. And so that range goes from zero years to 22, 25, even 30 years of teaching and all along the continuum, and quite a large percentage of people who have been teaching for more than 10 years. So that inspired me, just thinking about how many people are committed to lifelong learning and willing to think about what's happened in my classroom. My demographics have shifted. What is all this buzz around diversity? We're getting folks who are really curious and willing to think and learn together. And so the response among faculty has been very inspiring because the core of the course is, are these fantastic videos where instead of giving lectures through the videos, we've asked people to tell their stories about their lived experiences and their teaching practices. And we have faculty, staff, and student voices in the course. Graduate students. And graduate and graduates. And these testimonials, people... They're just, you have a visceral experience as you're watching and listening to those. And so over and over, we heard the comment of faculty saying things like, well, I knew my students were people, but now after I've seen all these different points of view, I got to hear really personal things about them that I normally wouldn't ask my own students. I have a much deeper sense of the challenges that they're facing. And the reverse is true, too. We've had graduate students say to us, I had no idea my faculty member had anywhere near that sort of experience. So referring to a video where two of our colleagues talk about being first-generation college students and having come from very poor backgrounds or very poor working-class backgrounds. And it was a revelation to our undergraduates that there might actually be faculty here who come from a similar kind of lived experience. The other thing that's just been, I think, really a good metric for success is that people have often talked about wanting to go back and talk to their colleagues. And I think that, as Melina is talking about the nature of the videos, is that there are so few opportunities to talk about this aspect of one's teaching. You might, for example, sit on a curriculum committee, or you might get into conversations about grading or end-of-semester evaluations, but rarely do you get invited into a more authentic, deeper, personal link between who you are as a human being fully, holistically, and what you bring to the classroom. So I think the videos do a fantastic job. And I want to put a a little bit of a pitch in here. Melina facilitated all of those videos. And I think she just did a fantastic job in getting people to relax and warm up and feel comfortable telling their story. It's really powerful. Thank you. (laughs) The other core piece of the course is reflection. So throughout the course, there's moments where we prompt participants to think about their own lived experience or their own socialization. And it becomes a very personal contemplative process. So I think that's also one of the things that I'm seeing among the faculty participation is that, yes, they're active on the discussion board, but they're also just really active in looking at the pages and reading the material. It's nice that you can track all of that information in online courses. You can really see how people are interacting. How have faculty responded? Has it been growing? 
Does there seem to be a lot of interest? And I seem to remember something about there being a fair amount of administrative support there too. I'm really happy to report from the first time we offered it to the second time, there's definitely what I would call an upward trend line. We had far more people register in the spring. So that was a huge sigh of relief for Melina and I, because of course, you know, if, if word on the street was negative, <laughs> no one would have signed up. So we were immediately gratified that we probably had a 25% jump in registrations. And interestingly enough, we've had a number of department chairs who've been genuinely engaged as participants. We've had some associate deans. And I'm very proud of this fact. Our president and provost both worked through the course themselves because they wanted to be able to talk about it in a firsthand way. And it's hard to express my gratitude to them for setting the tone as our senior academic leadership cohort to really send the message that this is something we all want to pay attention to. And I think we've had also the other group that can particularly be challenging in faculty development work to get engaged with is senior post-tenure folks. And as Melina mentioned, we have a number of people who are full professors who've been teaching for quite a while who said, yeah, I'm going to swing back around and take this course. And both semesters, we've been almost exactly a third, a third, a third. Graduate students and postdocs, tenure line or laddered faculty, and a full range within that from pre-tenure to post-tenure. And then about a third academic administrative staff who have teaching as some component of their job, folks from academic advising, the Learning Services Center, other sorts of student activities related positions. But it's made for an extremely interesting conversation. And I think everyone would say that they've benefited from that. Yeah, one of the things that we made available as an option was for self-selected groups to take it as a cohort. So this is something that we were also hoping that when the MOOC comes out, that some faculty development centers might offer a cohort experience for their own campus. And so those groups have been able to have leaders emerge from their own group and they have their own face-to-face sessions where they discuss the content of the course and take it just one step further. So we've had two experiences of that that I think maybe would be interesting I'll share them. One is we teach an introduction to teaching in higher ed course for graduate students, doctoral students and postdoctoral students, and they participated as a cohort. And that's a natural affiliation. And just as you'd expect, they loved it. They got a lot out of it. It was enormously interesting for us to have them in the course. The other group that's been equally interesting have been the department chairs who have been coming to it for a variety of different reasons. But the one I want to highlight is the idea that as you hire new faculty into the department, thinking about their orientation and onboarding both to the department, but also to the institution. And that's been a really interesting goal. And I thought really, if I can say this, a kind of a selfless goal. People really are thinking about the community writ large and how to help people accelerate their integration into the values and the priorities of our institution. That was not something Melina and I had anticipated. We thought, sure, this might at some point contribute to new faculty development, but we really didn't think of it as an orientation for department chairs in which they could then begin to think about their approach to teaching and learning and a way to communicate that with their new colleagues. That sounds really interesting. Can you also talk a little bit about some of the specific ways that through reflection you've seen faculty talk about how they have changed their teaching or the impact that the class is actually having on their own classroom? Sure. Melina loves this question. Yeah. So we did some interviews to explore just that, just to ask that question. So we have a testimonial video, which we can show you later. There's a couple of stories that really stood out in my mind. One was a woman who went back to her guest speakers list. This was out of the business college and realized that all of her guest speakers were white men. 
And she thought, wow, I can't believe this happened to me. I thought that I was aware of this issue, but I really need to actually have a systematic way of looking at my curriculum so that I make sure that I have a diverse offering. I can try harder. There certainly are some women business leaders I can reach out to. So that was one. And another comment was somebody saying, I do so much work in the community around advocacy for women's issues, but I never bring that part of myself into the classroom because I just don't know how to do it. But now I'm thinking that it's actually important to show this side of myself. And I want to be able to share that a little bit more with my students. Those are kind of my two favorite, but there's There's a third one that I love. Uh, One of our colleagues who's a full professor here talks about how she flunked out of college initially and probably wouldn't have finished except that another faculty member of hers reached out to her and really encouraging and supportive of her and helping her figure out a way to finance her way back into school and to complete the program. And I think that sort of visceral level of authentic crisis that undergraduates can often feel like they're in that alone or that no one else has had that experience before them or they're just that they're in it alone. And so I think her willingness to sort of frame that, she used the course and the reflection exercises to frame that out as her story. And then she actually this spring shared it with her students. She had, I think, 12 or 15 people show up in office hours, literally crying their eyes out in gratitude that she had shared that story because the amount of stress that they were feeling and isolation that they had been feeling and that no one else in the community had put themselves out in a way that resonated that deeply for them. So I thought that was a moment where, of course, we're not advocating that everybody just stand up and start babbling, but I think in a thoughtful way, she picked the right time in the right place and the right amount of self-disclosure. And it had a genuine and needed impact on her students. She teaches a large lecture undergraduate section. And as we all know, that can feel pretty anonymous to begin with. So I think that was just really lovely. So one of the questions that comes up for folks is when and how much information to share about themselves and their backgrounds and identities. So she felt like, oh, my students aren't going to care about this part of me. But midway through the semester, she noticed that some students seemed to be having trouble in the class. So that was when she strategically shared this personal story and then had folks coming in and just thanking her for being open about herself and sharing. It was really a beautiful moment. So one of the outcomes, one of the ways I think we know the course is a success is when we hear these kinds of stories back. Because most of our colleagues, I would say 99.9% of our colleagues have a good heart. They want to do the right thing. They want to connect with their students, but they just don't know how to do it in a nuanced and appropriate kind of way. So this colleague is an excellent example of someone who was willing and ready, just needed a strategy to shape it in a way that was appropriate to the academic environment and to her role as a senior faculty member. So I think one of the things Melina and I have been surprised about is the amount of willingness coupled with the amount of trepidation. There's just a lot of self-consciousness on people's part about wading into these issues because as we know, faculty are deeply socialized to not get out of their realm of expertise, you know, stay in your lane, as they say. And so we've heard over and over and over again, I'm not trained as a therapist, I'm not trained as a diversity expert. Well, welcome to the world. Most of us are not trained therapists or trained diversity experts. And so the exercises and the content of the course is really meant to build a sense of efficacy, just a way to get started. So we're very clear with participants that this is not meant to be an activity that's an end in and of itself. It's meant to be a bridge um, to further, deeper relationships and experiences. Can you talk about some other strategies in addition to self-disclosure that are revealed in the course that might get people itching to take the course once it becomes a MOOC? Well, one aspect of the course that I love is we focus a lot on active learning and student-centered pedagogical strategies. 
That's not the same as focusing on social justice and diversity issues, but it's a predicate for it. It's a super helpful way to get started. So we have just loaded the course with all sorts of very practical pedagogical strategies that act to warm up the learning environment by making it more active learning and more student-centered. And we've tried to keep these things sort of discreet enough that you could peel off one or two of them. So we're trying to break down this idea that either you go in and you do everything and all of a sudden you're a diversity expert or you don't do anything. And by trying to give people options of two or three or four or five different things that they might consider doing, even in just one class session, it doesn't mean you have to reframe your entire semester long course. But what our experience has been is that the response from students is so overwhelmingly positive when you move in that direction, that there's a lot of internal motivation to keep moving in that direction, to keep layering in active learning strategies. A lot of these are pulled from the PCAST report in 2012. And for a lot of our STEM colleagues, it's helpful or there's utility in being able to suggest the pedagogical strategy and then link it immediately to the research that supports its efficacy. And that's been helpful on our campus. Another thing that's persuasive is hearing it directly from the students. So instead of having this giant checklist of here's all the little pedagogical tricks, tips and tricks, we try to be pretty thoughtful and reflective so that it doesn't become advice giving or something like that. But in the interviews, we did ask students to answer the question, you know, do you have an example of a time where you really felt a sense of belonging that was created or facilitated by a faculty member in your time here at Cornell? And so the feedback we got from faculty talking about those stories was things like, oh, now I really understand. Like, for example, we had a young gay Asian male student who took a course where a faculty member just acknowledged that don't expect to see any references to gay relationships in this literature because this was a time where that was just severely censured. And so he just felt so glad to have it be acknowledged that it was an absence. So that's something you might not think of, but you hear a student talk about it, and then you start to slowly get a picture. You hear lots of little stories like this of a Black student talking about what it feels like to be at a primarily white institution and what has made a difference to ameliorate the stress that comes with that. Hearing it from students, and often the strategies that go with them are incredibly practical, like break the ice, offer a genuine opportunity for students to get to know you as a person, have office hours that are kind and open, be really clear and transparent about how you're grading. Some of the strategies are super practical, and you wouldn't even think of them as diversity strategies necessarily, but they do reach students well. We had a similar experience with a cohort of faculty that I'm working with related to accessibility. And we met with some students who take advantage of some disability resources we have available on campus. And so we met with some of those students and talked about their experiences in their classrooms and what has made them feel welcome and not. And we had some very same positive reactions like, oh, I didn't realize that a discussion class could be more tricky for you if you're taking notes and things because you might not always know what the clear takeaways are if we don't go back and summarize what was it that we just talked about. So sometimes it's just really small, easy things that a faculty member could do. We just don't necessarily think about it. So I think those student responses are just so powerful and really helpful. I totally agree. Another example that we've gotten very positive responses to is that when there's been a national or a regional or a city-wide or a campus-wide incident that's happened that we know has resonance for our students, we have sent out some strategies for faculty to use in the classroom, beginning with just acknowledging that it was rough. This was rough to experience this, whatever that is, fill in the blank. And letting students at that point know, you just acknowledge that this happened. 
And you don't have to go any further than that. Just acknowledging over the weekend, such and such happened in downtown and or it happened on campus. And I want to acknowledge that and ask you to be sure to take care of yourselves. Reach out to your friends, your family, reach out to services on campus. And here's a short list of services that you might take advantage of. But just that aspect of acknowledging it, students find profoundly helpful. So you're not making, as Melina's example was so eloquent about, taking it out of invisibility and making it real and bringing it into the classroom environment Because one of the things that we know is that students care most about how their faculty interact with them. So in the college experience, we know there are two key predictors of undergraduate success. One is meaningful relationship with their faculty. The second is meaningful relationships with peers. And so even though the student affairs folks and the residence hall folks are wonderful people and they do a fantastic job, if they're not hearing acknowledgement from their faculty, if these issues aren't coming up in class, then there's a huge gap for them. They really feel the absence intensely. So we, in the course, try to give participants strategies depending upon their level of comfort. So I always say you don't have to go one step further other than say, wow, rough weekend. Be sure you take care of yourself and then move right into your content. But just that moment, those two or three minutes of acknowledging the moment and acknowledging students are real people and may have significant feelings about these incidents can make a huge impact on their experience of the environment. All the way to the other end of the continuum where we have a wonderful colleague who will literally throw out the curriculum for the day, put people into individual writing exercises, and then into dyads, and then into small groups, and into a large group to process what the implications are of whatever happened for them individually and for us as an academic community. It's a continuum. And what we try to reassure people is anywhere along there is useful. Anything is better than simply ignoring it and starting with where you feel ready. Yeah. So one of the outcomes we've heard from faculty is them saying, well, you know, I sort of got the message from the senior administration that I should acknowledge, but I wasn't fully convinced. But once I took the course, I realized, wow, it really does matter to them. They really do care about this. It really does make a difference. And now I have to figure out how to do it. (laughs) Bringing that in through student voices, I think, is a really effective way of doing that. And I was very impressed with the sample videos that you showed at that conference a few weeks ago. I think the time and space that you give faculty to reflect on those moments is really important. Just in the conversation that we're having, I was thinking back to moments as I was a student when things like that had happened. And there was one moment that sticks out in my mind that I don't remember any other faculty handling an incident. I was a student during 9-11. And I remember one faculty member in particular did that throughout the curriculum thing. I was in a creative degree. So the conversation was, hey, it's really hard to make when you're scared and things are going on and you're not sure what's going on in the world. Sometimes it can be difficult to make, but sometimes it can be therapeutic to make. But we talked through what that means as a professional when things like that happen in the world. And that stuck with me forever since then. I think it can be really powerful, whether big or small or a big amount of time or not. And I think taking the time as a faculty member to remember some of those moments that you had as a student is also really powerful. I love your story. And it's one of the learning outcome goals for the course, which is that you do not need to be an expert. You don't have to have an answer. You just have to hold the conversation and facilitate a moment of reflection and connectivity. And I think in faculty lives, there's such a drive towards being an expert and delivering an expert's answer or solving the problem that I think one of the big takeaways from the course is that with this sort of engagement, you really just have to be present and be authentically yourself. And that in and of itself is the work. One of the issues that many underrepresented groups have to deal with is stereotype threat. 
Are there any particular strategies that are addressed through the course to help faculty reduce that? We do explicitly address both stereotype threat and also other sort of key concepts that I'll come back to in a moment. But in particular with stereotype threat, some of the ways that that can get triggered is unconscious and unintentional, where you, for example, ask someone to answer on behalf of what you perceive of their community to be. And so some of the discussion guidelines that we give people and some of the resource materials that are a part of the course go explicitly at setting up environments where you can anticipate and ameliorate stereotype threat from the very beginning. And part of that is making really public your perception around mindset. And this is one of the most popular strategies, but also really effective to make it clear that you believe that intelligence isn't inherited and it's not static, that we get better at things by practice and by application. For example, we often say we wouldn't have accepted you as a university if we didn't believe you had the acumen. But having acumen is not the same as having all of the prior preparation that some of your peers might have had. And so figuring out what you need in terms of strategies and learning how to learn, those are things that you can achieve that we would expect that you would need to work at them. So even being at at Cornell University, what's extremely interesting, we have a very well-prepared undergraduate student body, in many respects, just pretty spectacular people already. But a proportion of a group of them have come through high school just sailing through. They never really had to develop really coherent strategies for learning because they were just always ahead of the curve. They get here their first semester, their first prelim or mid-semester exam, and it's often quite shocking. And I think for many of them, very destabilizing. For example, the first year I worked here, the daughter of a good friend of mine was a first-year undergraduate student as well. She got an 80 on her first exam and literally collapsed. I mean, she literally thought she wasn't cut out for college. She shouldn't be here. This was too big a reach for her. She was never going to be successful. And I was still trying to wrap my brain around how is an 80 failing? (laughs) But this is a kid who never in her life had ever seen the 80s. She lives in the 90s or the hundreds. She's never seen the 80s before. But all of a sudden, the level of competition across the institution is at such a level And I think that's true in many institutional settings, from community colleges right up through university. And so helping students learn some concrete strategies for, and sort of at a meta level, learning about themselves as learners is another way to ameliorate that. So we have a lot of strategies like that in the course too. Yeah, and I'll add that even when we don't say this is how to ameliorate stereotype threat A, B, C, D, a lot of the strategies are doing exactly that. And we've just put them in the course where it makes the most sense to have them. So at the beginning of the course, we talk about things you might consider as you're establishing your learning community within your classroom, including how to help students get to know each other. One of my favorite all-time icebreaker exercises is to invite people to tell the stories of their name, like the origin of your name story. When we think about bring the whole person into the classroom, just allows people to share some cultural information because our names are encoded with all sorts of cultural information. Whether you're married or not, whether you've changed your name, immigration patterns, history of oppression is also encoded in names. We also have a very high percentage of international students on campus, so that enriches the name stories as well because you get different naming traditions. Names tend to mean different things across different cultures. So over time, you also get a bigger picture of how the world works based on people's name stories. So that's just a little example of that. We had another faculty member who sort of shares how he uses an identity pie activity to share a little bit about his own identity. So not just a single identity axis. So that also helps to ameliorate stereotype threat because you prompt someone to anchor themselves in the complexity of their identities. And then you're not just a Latinx student in the classroom or 
a person speaking with an accent that sounds different from most or a person with a disability, you're just much more than that. And I think that's probably one of the strongest features of the course because it's sort of something that comes out throughout every aspect of the course. It's just people are more complex. Here's ways to welcome that in. The social identities pie is a great example of what we try to do in this course, both giving people an opportunity to reflect on their own growth and development, but then to have an exercise that they can peel off and use with their own undergraduates so that we would expect that that would be useful to you personally, but also it'd be a fantastic tool to carry away and use in your classroom. You know, of course, depending upon your subject and your specialization. And so through the whole course, we try to develop what I would consider sort of heuristics or models that help you individually, but also I think could be really useful for you as a teacher and instructor in helping your students grapple with these issues as well. So modeling in the course, how courses can be delivered to address these issues effectively. Yeah, that's exactly our goal, John. How incredibly meta. But that's some of the fun of it, I think. And we try to be really transparent about that in the course. So we have what I would call annotations all along in the course. Here's something we're going to ask you to do that we also think would be useful to carry over into a classroom as well. And some of the discussion questions are really about what was this like for you? And do you think this would work for your students as well? I'm going to throw in a reference to a past podcast we had. You mentioned how building a growth mindset can be really effective. We did an interview last year, I believe it was, with Angela Bauer at High Point University, who uses growth mindset messages weekly in classes, and it's been found to have a significant effect on reducing performance gaps in the classes there, effectively eliminating them. It's amazing what a few well-chosen messages can do. And as Melina mentioned, it's a great way to prime students, but it also makes transparent what your values are. So one of the exercises in the course that we ask our participants to do is to craft a multicultural or a diversity inclusion statement. You can call it whatever you want, but just to put out there for students to read in the syllabus, here's what I think an inclusive classroom looks like. And these are the attributes of it. And these are the behaviors associated with it. And this is why I think it's important in the context of the course, but also in the context of the discipline. And it's remarkable how effective that is. If you do nothing else but that to strike out and make your own values transparent to your students, it can be pretty amazing. So when can we start taking this class? Oh, the fall. We would be delighted to have you (laughs) participate. And also, we really hope to stay in touch with people who do take it and use it as a learning experience or a faculty learning community on their campuses. To be quite honest, that's been one of my number one goals all along, of course, has been to serve my own institution's community here at Cornell. That's our number one priority. But we think there's relevancy. We think what's going on here is pretty common. And in fact, a lot of campuses and a lot of faculty are likely starting at similar places. And so our hope is that you can take it yourself, but also grab it and bring in a bunch of colleagues at your own institution and have a shared experience, primarily because we think that you will be able to tailor this to your institutional context. I think it's really important to make it personal and make it authentically linked to your legacy, your history, your current demographics, whatever the initiatives are on campus. We hope that this will be situated within a a more robust conversation at the campus level. When I was seeing the initial presentation on it, I texted Rebecca about this and said, we should run a cohort on this in the fall. We're very excited about the possibility. Yeah, definitely. One thing I would just want to add is that we're going to design the MOOC so that people can take it individually as well as as a cohort. And I want to reassure people that we're deeply aware of how constrained faculty are for time. It's just really tough to carve stuff out. Even if your heart is there and your intentions are gold, 
it can be really challenging. So we're really going to try to send the message that it'd be ideal if you could do this within the context of a group, but you could also just grab and go. You could jump in and hopefully it'll be a benefit to you individually as well. We'll share links to information on that in the show notes. One thing I would say is that I think people have found it a lot less scary than they thought it would be. It's very important to know that we don't have a subtext or a secret agenda of hunting for the racist. That's not our goal. It's not how we facilitate the course or how we facilitate the MOOC either. And so Malina and I were laughing about the fact that a lot of people have had prior experiences with diversity-related training or professional development or workshops. And we were laughing because I've heard this since the 90s from people saying, oh, I took a consciousness-raising workshop in the 70s. It was horrible, and I hated it, and I'm never going back. Or these opportunities come to people as mandated, top-down HR-related expectations. You have to take this course and sign it before you can get your contract. And we're the antithesis of that. This is strictly voluntary. It's strictly collegial. And it's meant to be an opportunity, as you were saying, to get meta, to just step back from the doing and have a chance to think about resources that are useful in shaping our thinking, which in turn will shape our behaviors. And for most of our colleagues in the faculty, I just want to underscore, it's not that there's a lack of willingness. There's just time to get the resources and have some focused time to think these things through and apply them in a tailored, bespoke manner to their own context and discipline and Mm -hmm. courses. And I think that's what the course really offers. It sort of gives you this lovely little bubble of a garden in which to sit and reflect and think in ways that you don't typically have in the course of a day. Yeah, one of the things that we're seeing in our survey data is that people's sense of responsibility around this issue increases, goes from the university should do this, but I don't have to do this, to going to, oh, yes, this is about me and what I do. There's just a much higher level of awareness and excitement about being a part of it. Probably speaks a lot to the idea that reflection is a very valuable teaching tool. Yes, yes. And one that as instructors, we know this, we know this, but it's easier said than done a lot of times. I'm really curious about behind you on your window, there's a tomato. Yeah. It looks like a tomato. (laughs) It is a tomato. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to tell my husband, who's an artist, who doesn't think I can draw, that you recognize it as a tomato. (laughs) So thank you. It's the Pomodoro technique. That's what we were wondering, actually. I think Rebecca and I both had that thought. I cherish when I can get literally five minutes in a row to complete a thought. And so I've taken to taping over the glass in my door with a tomato to signal my colleagues, I'm here, I'll be available in a moment, but I'm just trying to get one thing done. So you're human then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So since you've created the course, could you tell us a little bit about your background in the area and your experiences related to the course? One thing I love, which is completely accidental, is that Melina and I are both from New Mexico. And that has absolutely nothing to do with anything, except it's extraordinarily rare to meet another person from New Mexico. (laughs) So I just love that. That's just a sort of a weird thing we have in common. She actually grew up there, but I was born there, but didn't really live there in my childhood. But you live there. The other thing that we share in common is we both have traveled a lot internationally our entire lives. Melina and I have both been what I would call third culture kids where we're American by citizenship, but also culturally, it's much more complicated than that. 
And I'll let Melina tell her part of that story. But I think that's been really important in our growth and development of our approach to these issues. So my father was a pilot in the Air Force. He was a fighter pilot in the Air Force for his career. And we moved a lot. And we moved all over Western Europe and all over the eastern seaboard of the United States. So in my own lived experience, I've had a lot of opportunity to both be an insider and an outsider. And that has, I know, shaped my approach to this work. At sort of a specialization level, I have a doctorate from University of Massachusetts Amherst in multicultural organization development. So it's my research area, as well as sort of my lived experience. And I've been out as a gay man for a really long time, since probably high school, early high school. And growing up in a military community and also State Department community, my dad was a military attache, I think that really shaped me sort of that that fitting in, but not fitting in. That a lot of times it's called code switching, where you have to sort of adopt a certain set of behaviors or a certain narrative form to fit in, whether that's your home base or not. What and, about being a white man? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, <laughs> John and I have this in common. We're both graying a little bit, or at least I'm graying. <laughs> and so I walk into the classroom and I get an enormous amount of privilege, a benefit of the doubt. People automatically assume I belong at the front of the classroom. I've never been mistaken for a grad student. Even as a grad student, people always thought I was faculty. But because I teach in social work, my specialization area is in, my practice was in social work. And so I taught at Smith College in the School of Social Work for about 10 years. And always, whenever I do this work, I have to lead with, what's a white guy know about diversity? And who am I to be at the front of the classroom? And so I have, of course, as you'd imagine, a pretty comprehensive response to that. But Mostly, I like to lead with the idea that this is everybody's work and that white men have a role in this as deep and as important as women of color. It's just two ends of the continuum. But if white guys aren't involved and we're not taking it seriously, particularly with the privilege that comes from being an academic, then I think we perpetuate misogyny and patriarchy and racism in deep ways. So I think I can see when I do that, when I start right off with, okay, I know the first question on your mind is, what's a white guy know? I can see the visceral level of relief in the world because it was on everybody's mind. And until we address that, I know we can't get on to the work of the course or the the session or whatever. So it's pretty fun. So a little bit about me. I'm an Associate Director of Inclusive Teaching here at the Center, which is a new position, a new role since last July. And before that, I was focused on supporting global and intercultural learning at Cornell. And my interest in this particular area has been sort of bubbling and growing throughout my entire life, as Matt alluded to. I grew up bilingual and bicultural Argentinian-American and spent part of my childhood living in Uruguay, where my mom and her family still live. And doing that kind of cultural code switching, of realizing I was an American at, I think, age 10, having these moments of self-awareness that sort of continue to grow. And I still continue to have the moments where I realize, oh, I had a blind spot in relation to not really understanding this particular other way of being in the world. So, And I'm a poet by training, which I think has honed my observation skills. And I'm a former faculty member. I used to teach English at a community college in Massachusetts, where I was specifically hired as a bilingual bicultural faculty member to do quite a lot of teacher training and faculty development, actually, around that particular identity category. So I also had to contend with the complexity of being a white identified Latina woman and what that means and seeing my Latinx students' eyes get really big and be like, wow, (laughs) I didn't even know there were white Latinx people. And they didn't believe I could speak Spanish until I would speak Spanish to them. And that would sort of challenging the assumptions of who we are. And I love the discomfort that comes from being in the soup that is the complexity of identity and 
learning from how people's experiences of being misread or mislabeled or misunderstood inform us about how to do better in terms of building inclusive communities. So the work at Cornell, there's a lot of work to be done, but it's also an exciting moment because there's a lot of people on deck thinking about this. So the response we've seen from the faculty and then the president also being able to speak about this is incredibly inspiring. And then also going out to other campuses and meeting you at, in New Paltz and seeing other people are hungry for these conversations too. And students have a lot of place to think about their identity formation. And faculty, they're not often necessarily asked to unless there's suddenly an occurrence or an opportunity or an invitation. So I like being able to offer those moments of invitation to think about this together. We're glad that you do. It's a very nice resource. Yeah, we're definitely excited to explore it with our colleagues here. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? <laughs> well, now that we're concluding the second iteration of the on-campus course, the next is to actually write the MOOC. And we're also going to write a course guide. So for folks like yourselves who might host a, or facilitate a learning group there, this is a genuine invitation to feedback. We think that we're going to have a really fine course. It's going to be worthwhile, but we also always know there's room for improvement. And so we're hoping that this will be a sort of a virtuous loop of feedback from participants. And the course from the fall to the spring changed a lot. We learned a lot. And I expect that the same will be true of the MOOC as well. That's something we all should do with our courses, which is, again, Absolutely. a nice practice to share. Oh, look, reflection comes back again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. We're looking forward to continuing the conversation through the MOOC this fall. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. It'd be really fun in another year, assuming that we get it written and published and you've got a chance to convene a cohort. It'd be really fun to come back and do it again and talk about what was it like from your perspective, your experience on the ground. That would be really, really fun. We can interview you for your own podcast. Yeah. That would be that a would nice be twist, yeah. <laughs> We did have someone do that. It caught us by surprise because we weren't ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> but fortunately, we have the ability to edit. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.